Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. Welcome to episode 13 of the CSB SCB podcast. With us today is Dr. Clark Dickerson. Dr. Dickerson is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences at the University of Waterloo, and he is also the Canada Research Chair in Shoulder Mechanics and holds cross appointments to the Departments of Systems Design Engineering and Mechanical and Mechatronics Engineering. Dr. Dickerson completed his undergraduate degree in Mechanical Engineering at Alfred University in New York, his Master's in Bioengineering at Clemson University in South Carolina, and his PhD in Biomedical Engineering at the University of Michigan. After completing his PhD in 2005, he began working at the University of Waterloo where he started and currently directs the Digital Industrial Ergonomics and Shoulder Evaluation Lab, or as we all know it, Diesel. In 2010, Dr. Dickerson was awarded the CSB David Winter Young Investigator Award, which recognizes excellence for early career research. He further served on the CSB executive as the conference chair and was a society's president for the 2014-2016 term. And lastly, on May 10th, the day before recording this podcast, Dr. Dickerson proudly received his Canadian citizenship, and we happily welcome the new Canadian citizen to the podcast. So Clark, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. All right, it's great to be here. Thank you. The shoulder is described as one of the most anatomically and biomechanically complex joints in the human body, and it's really composed of four joints that collectively enable the upper extremity to achieve a variety of motions and positions. Can you discuss the relevance of each joint to shoulder function and or mechanics? Absolutely. Yeah. So shoulder complex is made up of four joints or three and a half, depending on what you consider a joint. So I'll go through them now. The main joint that people think about when they're talking about shoulders is the glenohumeral joint. So if I had to pick one joint, that would be it. And that's where you get the majority of range of motion. And it's also where there are substantial stability challenges, which I think we'll get into a bit later. So that's often when you see simplified representations of the shoulder complex, it's essentially a glenohumeral joint. But there's more. There's, there's more. The shoulder <laughs> keeps giving. I'm going to go outside in. So from glenohumeral joint, the next one is going to be the acromioclavicular joint or the AC joint. And this joint doesn't have much range of motion, only about 15 degrees. It is six degrees of freedom, not a lot of translation, but where it's helpful is in the high range of arm elevation. So when you put your arm up high, that's where the AC comes in. Where you see problems with this is, for instance, if you have a shoulder separation, people have a very hard time getting that last bit of elevation. And then sternoclavicular joint, I'm coming back to the pseudo joint at the end. Sternoclavicular joint is the one that connects the clavicle to the sternum. And that enables mostly reaching forward. And then in conjunction with the AC, that last little bit of high arm elevation. It's also six degrees of freedom. They're all six degrees of freedom, but you don't see a lot of translation in the two proximal joints. All right. And then there's the scapulothoracic articulation. And that has five degrees of freedom because it moves on a pseudo plane, which is the posterior aspect of the thorax. There are rotations. They're kind of co-occurring with the acromioclavicular joint. It's not technically a joint because it's more of a sliding, gliding plane. 
How that's helpful is because the, um, the scapula is the base of the shoulder complex. You could think of the scapulae as a split pelvis. If you want to think about it. there's a pectoral girdle and then there's a pelvic girdle. So the, the reason that gliding and connection to the thorax is so important is so that you have a stable base. It's critical for function, particularly when you're getting force transfer uh, proximal distal, which is one of the key things we want to accomplish with our arms. You already said it that the glenohumeral joint is the one that we probably really think of mostly when we think or talk about the shoulder. Six degrees of freedom, very mobile joint. And you already alluded to the issues that there might be with stability. And a common analogy used to describe the lack of stability in the joint is the golf ball and tee, where there's a limited contact surface between the golf ball, which would be the humeral head and the golf tee, the glenoid cavity of the scapula. That seems like a pretty easy, simple representation. Is, is stability of the shoulder really that simple? It's probably not going to surprise you that I say absolutely not. <laughs> okay. In my fourth year course called Upper Extremity Disorders, I spend about 20 minutes debunking the golf ball and tee analogy. It is a first level representation, but there are some problems with it. And I'll talk about those problems and then maybe that will open the door to the uh, majesty of shoulder stability or lack thereof. Okay, so why is a golf tee a bad representation of a glenoid? So the glenoid does not have one articulating surface, contrary to many simplifications. It's shaped like a pear. So there's really pear-like fossa that has two articulating parts, a superior and an inferior. As you elevate your arm, the humerus naturally translates up a bit. So the contact point changes. That doesn't happen on a golf tee. The other thing is a golf tee is rigid, so it has no compliance. A glenoid does, and it comes in the form of the labrum. Okay, so the labrum is a fibrocartilaginous rim that goes around the glenoid, and it's deformable. And this is really important for enhancing stability by primarily a mechanism called the concavity compression mechanism, which creates additional stabilization and increases joint contact. So the golf tee doesn't have that. Next, and this is the last one for this uh, deflating the golf ball and tee, is that the direction of gravity is, is crucial. When you put a golf ball on a tee, the tee is resisting gravity. In your shoulder, it is not. So the glenoid is facing primarily laterally and a little bit superiorly, which actually is really cool and important. But the gravity is, is across the face of the golf tee in this case. So the tee itself is not supporting the primary constant direction of force that we experience. So is it a golf tee? No, it's so much better, <laughs> but it's, it's got different challenges than the golf tee has. That's great. So we need to find a different example for class soon. Uh, for normal shoulder function, there are many anatomical structures that are required to work or move well together. And your research group has spent a lot of time studying the function and mechanics of rotator cuff muscles. So can you describe collective and independent importance of the rotator cuff muscles to shoulder stability and function? Certainly. So I love the rotator cuff. It, it is my primary group of muscles that I think about. And why, why would I care? It's because it's so critical. It's the vulnerable part of the shoulder. It's the most interesting from contributions to 
mainly stability, but a, a little bit on movement. I'm not trying to um, throw shade on anatomy, but often the focus is on how the muscles move the bones, which is important because if the bones aren't moving, it's quite a limited set of things we can do. But the stability is just as important. All right, so the cuff. What a dream the cuff is. All right, so the main concept of the cuff is it's arranged in such a way that the lines of action of the cuff across many different postures are primarily stabilizing. Not always, and that that's, becomes an exciting part of shoulder biomechanics, but usually. So the primary role of the collective is to stabilize. Why is it called a cuff? Because it goes around the uh, humeral head. Individually, well, that gets really interesting because they all have arm movement functions that are often duplicated by larger muscles, more powerful muscles. But if they're disabled or fatigued, then you have some semi-predictable responses. The short version is supraspinatus sort of elevates the arm, subscapularis internally rotates, and then infra externally rotates, as well as Terry's minor just does whatever infra does, but not as well. Okay. And that's a bit of a simplification. It must exist for a reason. It's a complementary muscle. I need some evidence for independent control. Okay. So th those are their like main mover actions. If your arm happened to be in anatomical position, but usually it is not. And the fun thing about the cuff muscles is that their degree of contribution to an action changes with posture. And even their primary function can change with posture. So you can go from being an elevator to a depressor, from an internal rotator to an external rotator, to having no effect at all on rotation, but only a stabilizing effect, depending on posture. If we get into the kinematic complexity of arm movement, then that's where it gets, starts getting a little bit hairy. The rotator cuff is also a common location for overused shoulder pathologies and injuries. And... You gave a talk titled Caught in a Bad Neighborhood, Muscle Fatigue and Origins of Rotator Cuff Damage. And before discussing some injury mechanisms, what motions or tasks are linked to rotator cuff injuries? There are two main ones. Overhead, so reaching high and doing something with your hand, and frequent internal-external rotation of the humerus. And those are the ones with the most linked epidemiological occupational outcomes. As that title of your talk and also publications from your lab indicate, muscle fatigue appears to be an important contributor to shoulder function and injury. And compared to larger muscle groups like, for example, the deltoids or the pectoralis, how does fatigue in the rotator cuff muscles affect scapular and humeral movement? Yes, this is totally right in the hot spot of, of my research. Fatigue above the cuff affects humeral motion. There's some speculation about scapular movement. But if you look at what's attaching the scapula to the thorax, that does not include the rotator cuff. So it's a secondary consequence. And there's two main mechanisms of what we would call fatigue-related dyskinesis or movement that's different after you fatigue. The first one, and well, I'll do the one that's less interesting first. So the less interesting one is changes in scapular motion, which I also call scapular reorientation. And the concept is that your scapula will move when you're tired in such a way that it creates a more likely injury scenario. We have to back up a little bit in terms of what gets injured primarily in the rotator cuff. The first thing to go, 98% of the time, is the supraspinatus tendon. 
okay? A tiny tendon of a tiny muscle. It's the one that's in a bad neighborhood. And where is that neighborhood? It's a subacromial space, which is a great space to, to study, but it's not a great space to live. Why? It's narrow and it moves around. And this tendon is running through that space. If the space geometry changes, the tendon can get compressed. I'm going to cover a little ground here, but what do tendons like to be exposed to? Mainly stretch, okay? Because their role is to transmit force from a muscle to a bone. So they're really good at acting like rubber bands. What they're not so good at is getting squeezed from the sides. So transverse loads, something like uh, you know, intervertebral disc, it's, it's a little more flexible in terms of its response to load, but tendons, particularly for a fusiform muscle, are, are, are unidirectional. And this is not the right direction. Okay, there's also was a paper that we did called um, Between Two Rocks and In a Hard Place. The two rocks are the humerus and the acromion. They define the, most of the borders of the subacromial space. All right, so what happens when you squeeze something between two rocks? You could experiment with an insect, but that's kind of cruel. Um, nothing good, nothing good is happening. Okay, and that's what's gonna happen to the tendon as well. So is it plausible that the scapula will move differently when you're tired or fatigued in such a way that that space gets smaller? And the answer is no. Okay, it, it doesn't. Uh, at least according to all, all of our studies, what happened was the scapula actually compensated and moved in such a way that it opened up the space. So it was, it was a protective response or a secondary response. Okay, but to what? And that's where the second mechanism is, which is humeral translation. So I believe I told you that the humerus translates as you elevate your arm. Okay, so it moves up a little bit. Moving up isn't great in the first place because you're making the space smaller. So, so the humeral head is coming closer to the acromion, which is bad. However, there are things to prevent it from translating too much. What are those things? You guessed it, the rotator cuff. Okay, so that is what is holding it back because it's a great stabilizer, right? And, and part of stability is limiting translation. So it pulls it back or prevents it from going too far. When the cuff is fatigued, what happens is it just keeps on going. How much? Well, it depends. How fatigued are you? What's your exact arrangement of the cuff? What's your bony morphology of the tuberosities on the proximal humerus? All this will interact, but it goes up. Okay. That going up compresses the tendon between the humeral head and the acromion, and then pathology. That tendon is the first one to go in almost all rotator cuff pathology. In terms of say, clinical visits, often there is a predecessor called impingement. The problem with impingement is it's really hard to, to prove that you're impinged. What that means is that something's compressed between two things. So the fatigue of the cuff muscles mainly affects that humeral motion, which is superior translation or migration. And why it's a problem is because of that tendon. If fatigue is this underlying factor for many shoulder injuries, what are some interventions that are used to either delay or prevent fatigue in occupational settings that required sustained work in these outreached or overhead positions? There are only a few. So one is job rotation, essentially limit the exposure by cycling through jobs that, that have overhead work and then do not have overhead work. The effectiveness depends on how accurate that rotation is and how, how different the jobs are. 
Sometimes it's not clear. Another newer intervention is something called exoskeletons or passive exoskeletons generally. And what those are, are devices that you wear. Generally, they're in the form of a backpack or look like a backpack. And what these do is provide essentially gravitational relief of the arm. So when you have your arm out, you no longer need to support it. The musculature, presumably that decreases the muscle load and then you take longer to get to fatigue. Knowing a little bit more about the structure and function of the shoulder now and its vulnerability to these overuse injuries, your lab has also completed some work on comparative biomechanics, specifically during a brachiating task. And before discussing a little bit of that work, it's probably best to first discuss the evolution of the shoulder from this weight-bearing arboreal form to its modern human form. So to start, how has the shoulder morphologically and even functionally evolved from our primate lineage to its modern human form? So this turns out as a complicated question to answer in, in terms of how did it evolve? We know that it's different, but what pressures were on the species through a very long time period that motivated these changes, it's very hard to nail down. Part of this is due to a reasonably fragmented fossil record. So we have some examples. I love the scapula, it's my favorite bone. But a big problem with it is that it's very thin. So it just doesn't survive the millennia very well as a complete bone. So we have to infer quite a bit what the complete bone may have been like from pieces. So we have a few problems. One is we cannot know how many steps there were precisely. And then we can also not know which steps we're looking at. Okay. Uh, in terms of, of the ones we have access to. What we can do is look for commonalities and differences in function morphology between either the fossils we have or between extant surviving species. So that's where we've gone. The main differences, if we think in those terms of sort of ancient or other primate shoulders and human shoulders, is going to be the weight bearing characteristic. So our shoulders, as it turns out, modern human shoulders are not good at weight bearing, particularly for adults. This is interesting because evolving from an ancestor that has spent a lot of time brachiating, which evolves this weight bearing overhead posture, the propensity for humans to injure their shoulders in overhead positions almost seems a little bit contradictory. And I know at one time there were grad students doing a monkey bar task in your lab that was intended to simulate the brachiation of chimpanzees. And were there notable differences in the kinematics between the human participants and some existing data on the chimpanzees? There was a mix. And in that study, which we had to rename, I think we ended up with horizontal climbing. That's what they, oh. they, they wanted us to call it. We attempted horizontal brachiation. I did not attempt monkey bars in the publication itself. But so in that study, the participant pool was a group of experienced climbers and non-climbers, and they behaved somewhat predictably differently. So we, if we consider those as three groups with different performances, so they were all different. The human experienced climbers were in the middle. So they demonstrated chimpanzee-like behavior to an extent. So this is telling us a couple things. One is humans are amazing. Like we, we can adapt 
or learn skills that mechanically leverage our capabilities to be better at something. So we have a learning effect that is just amazing. And those features of the movement are similar to what chimpanzees do naturally. So it's mostly about momentum and um, sort of the timing of arm use to an extent, muscle sequencing was more chimp-like. It was not exactly chimp-like though. So um, the chimpanzees are still much better climbers. If it's Olympics, it's interspecies Olympics, the chimpanzees are doing the climbing and the humans are doing the throwing. Humans are awesome throwers and chimpanzees are rotten throwers. And, and the opposite is true for climbing. I mean, I know people do it for fun, but we really have no business climbing. Like we are so bad at it. Your group also took this a step further to even create a glenohumeral model of the chimpanzee shoulder that paralleled your shoulder loading assessment model. Were there noticeable differences between the species in terms of the kinetics? So any of the reaction forces or moments or even the muscular demand that was placed on the rotator cuff muscles? So the answer is yes, there were differences and they were pretty profound. While there was some similarity in terms of which muscles were used, the timing was a bit different. So we did a stochastic comparison where we looked at distributed predictions based on different features of the known or estimated, in some cases, chimpanzee glenohumeral stability versus the human, and then muscle size, muscle attachment locations, all the uncertainty in those to create distributions of predictions of muscle use and consequently joint loading, et cetera, across the species, and then attempted to overlap them to see if there was any overlap. Because if there is, you could consider that to be sort of a species functional overlap. Turns out there was not. So I don't want to simplify the results too much, but to say that humans and chimpanzees are different. Okay. And they are different to the point where those species are far apart enough that there appeared to be um, clearly distinct strategies. They, they were different enough that there was no overlap across the muscles we evaluated anyway. But there are still similarities between those species. The main one being biped capacity. Humans are a lot of awesome things, but one of the most awesome is bipeds. It leads to, it leads to amazing things that we can do, but also problems. Uh, lucky for Jackie, a lot of those things are spine problems. But... <laughs> You know, there are pros and cons to being a biped. So this is a tough follow-up. And I know there's a lot that is still unknown in this line of research. But if you had to hypothesize the most important evolutionary factor that has limited the human overhead capacity and resulted in this susceptibility to rotator cuff injury, what would it be? Do you think it's more of a result of these structural adaptations or more related to the functional disuse? If I had to pick one thing, based on a biomechanical perspective, which is obviously what I have, I think it's functional repurposing of the limbs. The timing, the motivation is fairly hotly debated in terms of, well, why, why do we use our arms and hands in quite a different way than every other species? We don't know, but we know that we do. One of the things that I think makes us uniquely human, other than self-awareness and you know, emotion, communication, those are all really important that's what people tell me, is bimanual manipulation of tools. So using both hands to manipulate the environment. More even so than that, it's to do so in front of our bodies where we can see them. 
most tool use would fall into this category. And the other key feature that morphed the arm, so the repurposing, I'll say quickly. So that posture of hands together in front requires strength with a flexed elbow, which chimpanzees don't have. They have elbow strength with an extended arm. Why would you need that? Well, to hold on to a, a branch as you are traversing, it'd be great to have that. Humans have a lot of strength with flexed elbows, um, but chimpanzees sadly do not. I was going to ask again, because I'm curious what you said that this overhead movement, that it's particularly bad for adults. So for kids, it's okay. Is there a simple explanation for that? Fairly simple, yes. What I would say is go to a park, preferably with someone else, and then watch children doing the monkey bars. They are amazing. They are great at it. And I believe it's because the distribution of mass in the body is different. So this does relate to the chimpanzee um, function. Muscle mass in humans, in terms of the extremities, is very heavily weighted towards the lower extremities. In chimpanzees and other primates and quadrupeds, it's closer to a split. So we just don't have the muscle mass up there to be good at overhead. Uh, another topic that has come up is a modeling. It came up a bit earlier in this discussion already, but also in brief in previous podcast episodes. But we haven't really had a full discussion on modeling and biomechanics yet. And as a more general question to start, what constitutes a model? I feel like Sometimes this term seems to be used rather loosely or like for a variety of things. So maybe when you talk about a model, what does that mean for you? Or what do you mean when you use that term? I'm not a philosopher, but I, I philosophize sometimes. A model is anything that represents something else. A biomechanical model is usually a mathematical model that represents something else, typically a biological system. Most of the time in uh, my research, it's going to be a musculoskeletal system. You could argue neuromusculoskeletal a little bit, but I'm not too deep on that end of the continuum. So it's a simplification of an existing or potential system. There's a key difference there. And they're usually used for one of two things. Understanding how a system works. So it turns out we don't really understand all the body systems as well as we might like to. And the second one is to predict what's going to happen. So given a certain set of conditions, what's the response going to be or what's the performance going to be? That's the short version of what a model is in biomechanics. What are some general simplifications or assumptions maybe that we have to make in modeling? So most assumptions are problematic in that they're based on best current knowledge, which is not complete knowledge. Will we ever achieve complete knowledge? I don't know when that singularity will occur, but probably not anytime soon, based on what I'm seeing. So yes, there are problematic assumptions that are general. Probably the most problematic, at least historically, is assuming the goal of human behavior. So what are we trying to do? What is motivating the strategy to move or complete a task. So humans are complex and not just their musculoskeletal systems, but also their motivations. It's like in a courtroom, you cannot assume motive. You can only judge facts. So it's really hard to, to nail down why we move the way we move. 
we can all come up with a theory and then test the theory. And maybe it works sometimes, maybe it doesn't work other times. So it's situational, contextual, and also based on best current knowledge. So those are all problems with assumptions, but they're necessary. A common modeling approach that's used by your lab and even others at Waterloo is digital human modeling to simulate interactions between a human and a product or even a work design. What is different about digital human modeling compared to other types of perhaps musculoskeletal models? The biggest difference with digital human models is that they're industrially relevant slash used in that they are a package or a software program that is used by practitioners. Most biomechanical models are custom. To, to some extent, there are, there are platforms out there that could be used by multiple users, but they have specific questions that you're trying to answer. DHMs are more generalist in that you insert this digital human or avatar into an environment and then ask what the response will be. In many ways, the questions are more generic, but also more accessible to practitioners. Is there any information that is specified about the person or the avatar in the digital human model? DHMs are, are developing and constantly improving in terms of their fidelity or, or proposed fidelity in terms of trying to capture the multidimensional aspect of humanity. But the short version is most of it's anthropometry. And it depends how you define anthropometry, whether you're talking about static anthropometry or functional anthropometry. One is about essentially the ability to reach spots, and the other is about what you can do once you've reached them. But functional anthropometry would include things like vision. So can you view your hand, for instance? It turns out your work quality is quite a bit higher when you can. It's not surprising, but there are DHM capabilities to do that as well. Some will incorporate other aspects. For instance, with uh, Dr. Ladelfa, who's at Ontario Tech, developed a fatigue modifier on digital human outputs to use that as another human-centric feature to see how the person or the avatar would react in a fatigued state. So, so there is the adjustability. That's one of the beauties of digital human modeling, but most often it's just the anthropometry. And are these DHM models generally designed for a single task or can the user adjust the product or the workspace design parameters? So there's a lot of variation across DHMs, but generally they're very adjustable. So you can position the avatar in a wide range of postures with a wide range of mostly hand forces and simulate a variety of different tasks. Okay, so we'll end this modeling discussion again with a bigger picture question. How can we leverage all these different types of models? So the DHM, the musculoskeletal modeling to develop best practices for either ergonomic design of industrial or occupational tasks. So there's a few challenges here. Standardization is one that we are using similar models or base models. ISB has gone a long way in terms of standardizing kinematic reporting across the body, but also um, in particular the upper limb. And that was driven by the International Shoulder Group for the most part. So we, we need consistent reporting so we can compare across models and simulations. Identifying helpful indicator variables is also important. So why are we reporting these variables? Do they relate to an injury mechanism or pathomechanics or anything? 
oftentimes what's reported is convenient as opposed to what's meaningful. And I think focus on the why is important. You can generate a lot of data with a model, but not a lot of it is useful. Okay. And, and that is where the art and the science must converge in terms of the why is always more important than the how. If the how is wrong, you're still in trouble. But if you're not doing it for a good reason, then you're, you're sunk before you start. Moving on to a bit of a different topic. As we mentioned in the introduction, you completed all of your academic training in various shades of engineering in the United States. But when you started your faculty job at Waterloo, it was not at an engineering faculty where you had spent the prior eight years or so. What was the transition like from a graduate student in the United States and in engineering to the Canadian university system? There were some differences. It was a little bit strange at first, but in the end it was good. So coming in, I knew almost nothing about the Canadian biomechanics scene, which now I'm, I'm quite embedded. The biggest difference that I can see between the university systems is the decentralization in the U.S. It's all over the place. And um, that, that leads to a lot of inconsistencies in terms of experience that you might have in a program or even nationally, kind of what interactions you have. The highs can be highs and the lows can be low. In Canada, I found that there's a lot more consistency, which is really helpful, especially when you're starting out and, and actually quite encouraging that for the most part, you're speaking around the same topics from similar perspectives. Obviously, Canada is a large and diverse country, which is awesome, but there is a, an academic consistency of what I would consider very high quality that is really encouraging. As someone who is an engineer by training and has now worked in a kinesiology faculty for 17 years, you know a lot about both disciplines. Did it or does it feel like there was or even still is a dichotomy between these two disciplines that are in many ways studying the same problems? So I'm not sure there's a dichotomy, but I think there is space for those things to intersect and accomplish more together than separately. Different perspectives are crucial for solving problems in life sciences, including biomechanics. My particular bias, because my initial training, I, I think this is where it came from, was in mechanical engineering, is to see everything as a mechanical system. Everything, like from cellular movement to atomic charges and, and how electrons are bouncing around in atoms. It's all mechanics. It's just people put other words in, in it. But to a biologist, everything is biology and, you know, things happen to move, but it's because of the, uh, you know, the glory of biology. And then for a physicist, you know, mechanical engineers are far too practical. Like there's these underlying beauties of the universe that drive everything. And then mathematicians think physicists are too applied. So I don't think it's a dichotomy. I think we can work together. The way that I think is useful to place the human in the continuum of thought is that the human is in the world, okay? And how can we adapt the world to better suit the human? That's a, that's a very engineering side. Is that, well, what can I do to make things better? And then my limited perspective on the kinesiology side, it's how can we make a human better to adapt to the world? Okay, so can we just exercise better or develop understanding of how humans work in order to then 
maximize the intrinsic value of what, of what the human can do. And I would say, we've got to do both. And um, how we get that harmony or balance between them depends on thoughts coming from both directions. The end goal is the same, I, I believe. It's to maximize quality of life. And that is what I'm all about. That's what I'm trying to do. I know shoulders is not the only determinant of the quality of your life or your happiness or things like that. But we need to be big picture people. Biomechanics is huge. It's awesome. It, it, we got biology, mechanics, electricity, everything's together. And the, the problems of tomorrow are going to require input from everybody. It's not a coincidence that there's so much multidisciplinary work going on right now. It's because the questions, the questions we want answers to are not easy. And um, going up through one program is not enough to even consider all the, all the possible um, modifiers of what, what define the problem, let alone solving the problem. I like it. A good answer. So turning the discussion more towards funding and looking at your funding history, you've received NSERC for both research and infrastructure, but you've also been involved with the acquisition of funding through contracts and consulting work. How do you balance the research with industry jobs that may be related, but don't directly align with the vision of your research program? So I think this is going to follow up on my last statement to an extent is that if it doesn't align with your vision, then your vision is too small. What I would say is that, what is my vision? My vision is that shoulders are critical to the human experience and understanding function in an uninjured state, in an enhanced state, in a damaged state are all just as interesting. So what I see industry, clinical, et cetera, as are applications. So these are applications of fundamental knowledge and they're all really important to the people that are invested in them. Sports is crucial to high-performing athletes. They want to know how to get better or how to do the best they can with what they've got. That's hard, hard to make much inroads if you don't have a basic knowledge of the system itself. Shoulders of growth industry, we're at the point right now where we have a lot to learn. So what I would say is, I think they all do align, but the vision is pretty, it's, it's a big umbrella that I'm fitting things into. So whenever anyone brings an idea to me, which happens relatively frequently, so what I say is, does it involve the arms and humans? And if the answer is yes, then I'm probably in, as long as the question is, is reasonably good. And, and that, that there's a little debating there, often the format of the question, but if it involves shoulders, I'm having fun and I think contributing, and that's what we do. You've also completed a visiting scholar fellowship at Liberty Mutual Research Institute. How did conducting occupational and health and safety research differ in more of a private research sector compared to at an academic institution? So short answer is I like the academic better for my personality. And the main difference is what's driving the questions that you're answering. Is it curiosity? Is it money? To some extent, it's going to be both in all cases. But the, um, the weighting on those factors is going to be a little bit different. So, for instance, Liberty Mutual is an, is an insurance company. They're quite interested in questions that relate to insurance claims. So a lot of the, the topics studied would have some relevance to what generates a claim. If you're working for, a um, say, a, a big automotive company, they're going to have a bunch of 
questions related to what causes injury amongst my workers. And is there a, a way to minimize that? But the, the academic questions are more like, why are shoulders so amazing? Like, what, how do we do stuff with our hands overhead? Like, how can people even throw a javelin in the first place, let alone that far? It's insane. Because other people are just busting themselves up, typing on a keyboard. But uh, you know, uh, there's not necessarily a business case for all those questions. So that's the big difference. I have a short sentence here. It's uh, knowledge is power, but it is also money. There's knowledge for the sake of knowledge and making the world a better place, but there's also knowledge that can save or make money. And, and both of those things are important. So we're coming to the end of the episode. And the last item on our list are the rapid fire questions. And if possible, please try to answer in one sentence or less. <laughs> Number one. As an avid disc golfer and ultimate frisbee player, along with being a shoulder biomechanist, is frisbee throwing performance all on the shoulder or all in the wrist? Okay, so I should preface all my answers by saying that I chose um, movie titles to answer. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay, and I can elaborate a little bit, but it'll be within a sentence, I hope. So for the first, that question, it's the agony and the ecstasy. There's not much that's as exhilarating as a nice shot in either sport. It takes your whole body. It's not the wrist or the shoulder, unfortunately, because those are my top two. If I had to pick one, hips. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> and that kills me. <laughs> we appreciate the sacrifice. <laughs> Number two, if you had to pick one American school that you attended to cheer for in NCAA sports, who would it be? The Wolverine. Number three, what is your must-have smartphone app? The Running Man. Okay, so acknowledging all of the limitations with fitness trackers, I still check Fitbit a lot. Number four, what is a funny thing that has happened to you while teaching? What lies beneath? <laughs> This one is a little bit of a story, so I'm just going to do it, okay? It involves our grad course at Waterloo. So I came in to the class about 10 minutes late with heavy snow boots on. And one of the students is, Dave Kingston is his name. He's now, now in Nebraska. Um, noticed that I wasn't looking that happy to be there. So he's like, what happened? So it had snowed overnight and I had to clear the driveway with my snowblower. At the time we had young children and we had excess garbage as a result. So some of this garbage was placed in a white garbage bag and it snowed on top of it. So as I got to the bottom of the driveway, I ran over said bag and projected frozen diapers all over the street. And uh, he couldn't stop laughing. I consider that a funny thing that happened. It didn't really happen while I was teaching, but it affected my teaching. Number five. What is your biggest pet peeve as a reviewer? Are we there yet? <laughs> Long phrases and sentences that don't contribute information are my pet peeve. That sounds kind of negative to end, but it's true. So. That was an, an interesting twist to our rapid fire question. So we appreciate that. That concludes episode 13 with Dr. Clark Dickerson. Clark, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. It was great.
In our next episode, we're going to be discussing EMG control of prosthetics with Dr. Yusha Kuruganti from the University of New Brunswick. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on your favorite podcast applications.